VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, April the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Now, we're off tomorrow. No show on Good Friday, so today is the come out with an edition of Open Line. So if you're intending on calling tomorrow, today is your day. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCN, which is 8626. Well, bravo to all involved with yesterday's VOCM Cares Ronald McDonald House Radio on. So they have a campaign now to build a family time park adjacent to the Ronald McDonald House over around the Health Sciences Complex. So they have $750,000 required. Going into yesterday, they had $100,000 from their own reserve fund. They had raised through private and public donations some $325,000 additional dollars. Yesterday, with contributions from you, the listener, some corporations and foundations and individuals, we raised $295,000 yesterday. So that's 76% of their goal to get that family time park built at Ronald McDonald House. Uh, ben Murphy really took the lead on the Radiothon here at the station yesterday. Yesterday, so bravo to Ben and all involved, and thank you to everybody who made a donation. You can still make a donation. You just go to Ronald McDonald House NL, their website, and there's a secure donation opportunity right there. But two ninety-five, whoa, pretty good. All right, we'll offer this one in the air of good news. All right, everyone knows the conversation surrounding the price of home heating fuels and diesel and gas. Well, yesterday, diesel and home heating fuel dropped by more than ten cents. Okay, that's the good news, but no change in price in Labrador. The amount of money they're paying for diesel in Western Labrador at Churchill Falls is over three bucks, three ten a liter of diesel. Unbelievable stuff. Gasoline, an ever so slight decrease of one point one cents. Average price of gasoline, self serve, unleaded on the Avalon. 184. Okay. 186 in Central, 185 in Deer Lake and Cornerbrook, 191 in Western Labrador. Propane down a couple of cents. Almost three cents. So you know the story regarding that. Okay, a couple of quick ones today in history. This one offered by a listener, Peter. Really appreciated the note. It was 20 years ago today that the Juno's Gala was held at Mile One Center. We went. It was a great night out, but it was 20 years ago today. Man, time is flying like nobody's business. The Juno's at Mile One. And in 1956... The first videotape recorder was launched by Ampex Corp. So that really led to an explosion in television news gathering. So they could actually video record it right there handheld. Okay. Also today in history, and this is an interesting one. It was 41 years ago today that the NASA space shuttle Columbia made a picture-perfect runway landing in a desert. It was the first reusable rocket. So... The story of the shuttle is kind of wild anyway, isn't it? So this was the maiden voyage. It was commanded by a fellow named John Young. He was a veteran of both the Gemini and Apollo programs. He was the ninth person to walk in on the moon. So Columbia was named after the command module of Apollo 11, as we know. Columbia served for 22 years, 27 missions in space before the second accident. It led to the retirement of all five space shuttles. Uh, Enterprise, Challenger, Discovery, and Atlantis. That was back in 2010. They flew 135 missions over 30 years, launching satellites, the Hubble Space Telescope, interplanetary, interplanetary probes, and the like. They actually participated with the Shuttle Mir program with Russia. Whole Russia. So that was in 19... That was 41 years ago today in 1981. 
Okay, what do I got here? I can't read my own scribbles. Oh, this is a good one. So there's a group out there that's been led by a fellow named Brent Smith trying to recruit athletes to participate in the 55-plus Canada Games coming up this August out in Kamloops, British Columbia. Apparently, we're the only province that doesn't have representation at this Olympic-style event. So if you are over 55... 55 plus and remain active i mean the lots of athletic specimens out there who are that age so there's five pin bowling track and field events there's various running distances badminton tennis darts dragon boating curling ice hockey and even scrabble <laughs> scrabble at the canada 55 plus games so the fellow's name is brent smith as i mentioned uh, mentioned they have a facebook page or you can just send them an email it's brent 55 plus nl at gmail.com hopefully we can put together a squad to represent Newfoundland and Labrador at the upcoming August Games in Kamloops, B.C. Okay. So we'll talk about how government spends money, right? And we always should talk about how government spends money. And they are betting big on the film industry. A lot of people over the years have really bemoaned and criticized the fact that the government was offering not only a tax credit, but monies for individual television shows. It actually has grown the industry here to the point where film last year was worth some $100 million. So they're going to spend $10 million, that came from this year's budget, to create a new film school at the College of North Atlantic campus. Now, the formal offering won't be there till January, but they're going to kick it off, and they got about 100 students enrolled for their first semester. When you look around that landscape, so many people still refer to it as a waste of money. But what we've seen is the advent of a well-trained crew. We can have the rugged beauty, we can have the 30% tax credit, but unless you have the labor, the crew, to work on these projects, they probably won't come. So we've seen how Disney's come to town with Peter Pan and Wendy, and you know, Sunford Critch is renewed for second season, and Hudson Rex has been filming, and all the other shows. You know, Republic of Doyle, Frontier, the list is, is extensive. So this money, will indeed provide an opportunity for a real, full-time, gainful, meaningful employment in the TV and film industry. So $10 million to open up our first formal film school here. And CNA has also signed agreements with other film schools across the country so that you can transfer credits. This will be criticized. Of course it will. That's just nature of the beast. But we could and should talk about how government spends money, whether P, yes, I know it's frustrating, is NASCAR or film schools or anything else, but when we're talking about an educated public, it doesn't always have to be in the STEM world, you know, science, tech, and mathematics and engineering. There's lots of opportunities out there outside of those very key issues, and of course, real job opportunities in STEM, but this investment in TV and film is something that if you want to discuss, I'm happy to discuss it with you today. All right. You have to wonder about the audacity of people working in the public sector who are willing to take a taxpayer-funded credit card and spend money on their own personal needs, cash advances and otherwise. This story is infuriating. So we saw what happened at the Newfoundland Labrador English-speaking school district and all the invoice splitting and the wheelbarrows and extension cords and all the rest. Then it cost a bunch of money to implement some additional oversight to ensure it didn't happen again. Now we find out, through an Auditor General's report, about the fact that there's been upwards of $600,000 spent by public sector employees for stuff that's not for the public sector. Not for me, not for you, not for department operations, for themselves, including whopping big cash advances. Okay, clear examples of fraud. One person got fired. Others have been disciplined internally. Largely, the money has been repaid. 
And it goes, almost every department has reported one of these incidents. The problem that I think is glaring is that not once were the police contacted. It's fine to try to deal with things internally, but when we throw around words like fraud, that's not meant for HR. That's meant for the RNC. You know, we don't even know what the outcome or the the fallout was for some of these shenanigans at the English-speaking school district. But this one here, even if the minister says they are implementing, well, let's see if I can get the direct quote, additional guidance and revised business practices have been implemented to supplement the existing policies on card usage to ensure proper checks and balances are maintained to reduce the risk of such events from occurring again. If you work for us, and I don't know who these people are, if you work for me and you and all our listeners and all residents of the province, if we can't trust you with the credit card, we can't trust you, period. It's alarming that one person only has been fired because it's widespread through a variety of different departments. They talk about some of the best practices out there to ensure that it doesn't happen again, but we haven't implemented those. You know, first one of the quotes from a guy who's working in this actual field. He says there's all kinds of protocols that can be implemented with no big whopping charge to ensure that this doesn't happen again by using data analytics. If you review all your expenses, have a system for reviewing expenses, then you curtail the amount of fraud dramatically. So says an expert in the field itself. His name is Dave Oswald, director of the financial restitution uh, at Financial Restitution, Forensic Accounting and Fraud Investigation Company. Fraud is not an HR issue. <laughs> you have to wonder what goes on. A- and again, it's easy to know how government, department officials, they spend pretty freely. The amount of waste inside government is not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador, but it's pervasive across the country. And all that ends up doing is costing me and you more. Unnecessarily so. So it's one thing to be careless or reckless and hardly thrifty and quite frivolous with spending taxpayer money, but when you know full well that every single person who went into a bank or wherever to get a cash advance, a cash advance on a government credit card, they knew what they were doing. These were conscious decisions, and they were conscious decisions to defraud us, and yet No contact with the uh, law enforcement, with the authorities. Why not? Is it for, you know, try to keep some of the black cloud from hovering over Confederation building? It's a complete misread of the tea leaves. For us to think that you're accountable and have our best interests in your heart and your mind and at the tip of your pen and the fingertips to call the cops, if you do indeed expose these things, that's what makes you look good. Not trying to pretend they didn't happen so that the, the ire of the listening public is drawn and criticisms are levied. No, it's the exact opposite. If you show us that you care, if you show us that you're aware, if you display the integrity that your authority and your position of authority should entail, then maybe do better. And maybe this conversation is over. But can you imagine? Can you imagine? $600,000 stolen. Okay, repaid, some wages were garnished. One person got the pink slip. (sighs) One second, a sip of coffee. We're back. Okay, and you see Eddie Joyce in the news? Eddie's in the news for a bit. Now the Commissioner for Legislative Standards is calling on Eddie Joyce to be suspended. And this is all about filing his conflict of interest reports with the commission. 
And he's standing up for himself, as he always does. So what he points out, and here's the report coming from Mr. Chalk. Uh, Joyce failed to provide financial documents surrounding conflict of interest provisions inside the act. Mr. Chalk says that Eddie Joyce repeatedly and willfully refused to provide the requested information. Joyce says, wait now. He supplied it. It was after the deadline. He says there's other members that also missed the deadline, but they're not being taken to task like Mr. Joyce's. And he very clearly points to the fact that for 27 years, not a hiccup. But now that he's brought a lawsuit against Mr. Chalk and others, which include uh, Perry Trimper, Sherry Gambin Walsh, and Premier Ball, now all of a sudden, all of these things are a problem. It's an interesting defense. My question would be, if there are other members who have also missed the deadline, how come they're not being uh, uh, how come they're not being identified by name by the commissioner to talk about suspension or whatever the case may be so Eddie thinks it's no coincidence that since the lawsuit was brought forward he's in the crosshairs anyway another one that I'm having a little bit of a difficult time trying to square this particular circle is regarding the fact that we know that premier fury is dr fury and so he said right off, the, right off the bat that he was going to do what was required by the College of Physicians and Surgeons to keep his credentials alive and active. And so consequently, he would have to perform X amount of duties as a surgeon so that he could keep his credentials. The college says he's required to work as a doctor for 120 days in a three-year period. The confusion comes, I suppose, that there hasn't been a public disclosure of how much work he's done and how much he's billed MCP. All right. So online records, and this is dug up, I think, by Rob Antelope over at the CBC. Online records uh, showed in 21 and 20 and 21, Fury billed over $257,000. That, uh, that also includes five months before he became the premier. There's also some records show that he was paid between $600 and $800 for each surgery performed. All right. From August to December last year, he performed 16 surgeries. If I'm not mistaken, I thought it was the consensus that yes, you know, we need a full-time premier. But when his life in politics is done, whether he decides to walk away or is defeated, it's certainly in our collective best interest that another surgeon can be on the roster as opposed to credentials lapse and then what that means and the time it requires to put the credentials back in place. So hopefully, whenever Andrew Fury is done with politics, he can go back into an operating theater. Some curious comments, too, coming from the opposition, in particular a House leader and interim leader, David Brazel, saying that whatever money he's paid as a doctor, he should donate it to charity. It's sort of a strange angle to take at this type of issue. But, yeah, public disclosure, again, is always in government and individual politicians' best interest. But the premier is keeping his credentials alive. I don't, I've been told via email that that's a terrible idea and he shouldn't do it, but... I think we kind of need the surgeons when they're available. How about you? All right, and a good story today I suggest to read about the hurdles that nurse practitioners are facing in trying to establish their private clinics. They absolutely will be a key in filling some of the gaps in the healthcare system because you don't need me to reiterate just how tricky it is out there and how many people are looking for a doctor. So a couple of interesting things of note. So a nurse practitioner in Cornerbrook is quoted, and she's treated more than uh, 400 patients since the clinic opened on February 21st. And these people did indeed pay a fee for care. And at this moment in time, they're unable to bill MCP directly. So that's an issue that I think we're going to have to broach. But here's where it becomes inexplicable. Okay. So these nurse practitioners 
in their established clinic, they're told that they'll be charged twice as much as doctors to get access to the provincial electronic medical system. Why? What would the difference be? Are we trying to dissuade nurse practitioners from setting up shop? They also don't have the ability to access diagnostic test supplies. Now, they can keep their own private separate record keeping, but of course, that's less than efficient. It might be less cost to those nurse practitioners and their clinical operations, but then what about when they try to make a referral and to schedule follow-up? When it's not integrated with the province-wide medical system record or medical record system, why are we putting this hurdle in place? And especially, how come it costs double versus a doctor to access that particular online system? I just don't get it. Do you? All right. Quick note before we go. So the Bank of Canada has jacked up, and this was not unforeseen. They've jacked up their benchmark interest rate by half a point yesterday. And, of course, it's not the only thing that's going to have to be addressed by the Bank of Canada and politicians and government to deal with 30-year high inflation, which is last we were told is 5.7%. And it's not to be all and end all. It's one thing that can and should be done. So says the Bank of, governor, uh, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem. But it comes with the cost to us. Now, we've got to try to slow it down. We've got more money chasing less, fewer goods. So that's one of the lay definitions of inflation. Now, root causes are varied, and it depends on who you ask. It's all about the Bank of Canada printing money, which didn't happen, and global supply chain interruptions, and conflict in Western or in Eastern Europe. All of the, There's so many different contributions to inflation. But it has to be reined in. There's going to be a bunch of rate hikes this year. So now it will indeed cost more to service your debt and to take on more debt. It might not be immediate. And it takes months and months and months for any benchmark interest rate hike to actually have an appreciable impact on inflation. But what it also means, we've talked about the difficulty for Canadians to get into a new home. This further complicates it because the stress test has now changed to qualify for a mortgage. So that'll be one of those offshoots. Yeah, money's been cheap. I mean, back in 2020, it was basically free. You know, the very minimal, minimal interest charged on a loan. And now it's changing, and it's going to change even more throughout the course of the year. That's the first time in a long time that there's been back-to-back hikes. So anyway, you want to talk about the Bank of Canada and servicing our poor old debt? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Tune coming. On the top record uh, charts in 1979 on this day, the Doobie Brothers were at the top with Minute by Minute. But just breaking into the top ten with their breakthrough album, Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, here's a little surrender. But don't surrender. You come back and engage. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning as soon as I can find the clicker. On line number three, good morning, Philip. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show, Philip. Uh, uh, thank you. I'd like to make a few observations concerning the sale of the property at Holy Rosary Church in Portugal Cove. Absolutely. Go right ahead. Uh, well, first of all, my family were parishioners from 1833 to 1982 when we became part of a new parish called Holy Family Paradise. My, my ancestors, Mr. Da, uh, Mr. Daly, uh, are buried there up to 1907. And... Uh, most of the land, from my research, from doing term papers for the university when I was going there, is a cemetery, with the exception of the parking lot and where the house was built. At one time, Holy Rosary Parish extended from from Kellegrews to Tor Bay, including Belle Island. So there are people in those areas with ancestors 
buried in that area, right around the church, even the driveway going up to the church. There were headstones there till up to the 1960s when they were removed. And there are a lot of people in unmarked graves there all around the church. I've seen pictures of the old church. There had been two churches there. The first church was built by Father Edward Troy, one of the pioneer priests in the province, in 1833. And just literally, uh, it's a graveyard. And and I think that uh, the cemetery should be held as a heritage site and a sign of respect for people who helped build this province. Yeah, no argument coming on that front. I don't know if it needs a designation as a heritage site, which is one of the debates happening right now in Portugal Coast St. Phillips. But the Archdiocese has said, and they've made an agreement with the lawyers uh, representing the victims of Mount Cashel, uh, Mr. Bodden, that the cemeteries won't be sold and they won't be touched, which well, is, is comforting. Well, other than the church and the presbytery and the school and the parking lot, uh, the rest of it is all cemetery. Oh, I know. I'm I'm familiar with it. I have family uh, yes, from the coast, eh? and many of my ancestors, including my nan and pop, Michael Saber, buried in that cemetery. That's right. So I'm pleased that the cemeteries won't be touched, as I would imagine everybody is. It's an interesting debate that they're having down there. I mean, that church opened up in 1915. I've been That's in right. it many times. One of my sisters was married in that church, but to designate it with a heritage status. No, I don't mean that, but I think not the building. You know, what I'm talking no. about is, is I'm more concerned about the, the respect for people who are buried there. You know what I'm saying? I and do. The whole area is a cemetery. I don't think it's going to be touched, though, and the, the agreement's been made. So I think the cemeteries are protected in all the archdiocese of St. John's properties. The churches will be sold or will be put up for sale. I don't know what how many takers will be out there, and that's a beautiful that's little fine. church. So the cemeteries will indeed be respected and left alone, and rightfully so. But just uh, now that you're, you know, someone who's in the know about the Holy Rosary Parish, the the heritage designation also comes with protecting some of what is a very bleak piece of history at that wonderful church. I mean, in particular, Father Hickey. Well, there's been a lot of bleak history places that we have around the province. Oh, yeah. Besides Holy Rosary, I can tell you places... That has been, you know, a lot of places being respected now that with bleak things happened. Time has, uh, has healed a lot of wounds in this province in, in a lot of places. That's what true. What I'd like to be concerned about, the land and buildings that 34 schools that were confiscated without payments by the province, why ain't that thrown into the mix? It's an excellent question. That comes with a couple of strange pieces. Some of those properties are no longer being used as schools, but many are. So when it comes to sell off of those properties, what does the province do? Because we've got children in those schools. So right. if they're sold off, how do we accommodate it? Is it about building the schools or the province is going to have to buy the schools uh, from the archdiocese formally? But, you know, that went by the wayside with the end of the, of the denominational school system. But that's an excellent question, Philip, and I don't think they've got it figured out yet. Like, uh, I, I know one thing. Why should the parishioners of the archdiocese uh, pay, for, uh, pay for 100% when the church got... When the church got their schools taken away from them, and my mom's first cousin donated the property free where Ron Colley School is on, on the Cole Road. Is that right? Yes. And, I, and if we were talking to her office, I'd tell you her name. She got people living there yet on the Cove Road. And I know of people in the Cove who donated where that parking lot is to. They still live in the Cove. And, and they gave it free, you know, because they wanted to give something to the community. 
Now, here's the province walking away without taking 34 schools in the archdiocese and walking away and, and not helping. A lot of those kids were put there by the government. I know because my brother was a welfare officer, and he dealt with Mount Cashel, and his name was brought up in the Youth Commission. And, and uh, he was a welfare officer on Harvey Road. And, you know, they were brought there. So the government is, is a culprit here. And regarding things that happen in Portugal Cove, I can name a lot of things that happen throughout this province in not only the Catholic Church, but every type of business. Oh, yeah. But that's not the point that I was trying to make because, of course, the history is bleak for many members of the clergy and members of the Brotherhood and what have you. But my point is that, you know, applying a heritage designation is, I don't even know, maybe it's even a step too far because maybe just because I have a personal bias here, given the fact that, I mean, I watched uh, Jim Hickey bury my grandparents and all the rest of it. And so I, I don't know if that designation is necessarily appropriate. There's only one dissenting voice in the Portugal Cove St. Philip's Council, and that's Gavin Will. Everyone else is pushing for the Department of Municipal Affairs to absolutely assign that important designation to the Holy Rosary Church down in the Cove. Anyway, that's it's Well, it's I'm not saying, uh, probably I, got, I said the wrong word. No, you didn't. I, I don't I, I mean in that sense. I mean, like, the cemetery sh- everywhere should be respected, like Beaumont Hamlet's. I mean, that's our ancestors are buried there, and I'm not saying maybe designated as her site, but they have another cemetery down on the western point of Portugal called and it's ancient, and no one is allowed to go in there and build a subdivision on it. Right. Point you taken. go down and look at that ancient uh, cemetery out on western point. I'm from this area. Our family came this area in 1810, and I know the history of, of this area, and, and, like, you know, I've I done a lot of research when I was going to university for term papers. So uh, I don't understand how the government is getting off the hook. Others will say that they don't understand why the Vatican is getting off the hook because it was last week, week before, whenever it was, I read a report about the amount of uh-huh. monies that the Vatican holds, whether it be in the Vatican Bank or the real estate assets or otherwise, because, and here's the interesting one, the, the largest landholder in the world outside of government is the Roman Catholic Church. And uh-huh. even if you took all of their land assets and even just appraise them with the value of vacant farmland in Saskatchewan, which sells for about 900 bucks an acre, it's still $160 billion. So just add into the fact we're there on right. you know, Central Park West and all, all these prime real estate locations around the world. The Vatican maybe should be involved as opposed to the local parishioners paying the price with the loss of their church. Uh, last word to you, Philip, before I have to go. Well, the only thing I'm saying is, uh, you know, you talk about unmarked graves, and there's a lot of unmarked graves down the cove that have my aunts and uncles in them. And they weren't murdered or anything, but they just never had the money probably to put a headstone there to them. Understood. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying, and I appreciate well, you I making time. Got, the court's got to get more fear with this and bring the government into it. Well, spe- specifically about the schools. I think that's an important question you ask, because I'm not so sure they've figured out what they're going to do with those schools. But anyway, Philip, off to the break I go. I appreciate making Take time. Care. Happy Easter. Take care, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, and of course, just one more mention, uh, no show tomorrow on Good Friday as we make our way into the Easter weekend and the schools, the, the children and teachers, administrators move off to their Easter break. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. 
Welcome back to the show. Join us on line number two is the Liberal Member for Harbour Grace, Porter Grave. She's the Minister Responsible for Women and Gender Equality. That's Pam Parsons. Good morning, Minister Parsons. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and happy Easter to you and all your listeners. The very same to you, Minister. Thank you. I wanted to call in today with uh, just to check with some MHA matters off the top. Uh, first and foremost, as you know, um, harvesters now across our province are certainly taking to the water for the 2022 fishing season. So I have a large fishing district in Harbour Grace, Porter Grave. I think there's uh, across every community actually in my district there are harvesters. And so I want to wish them all the very best, a very safe and successful season. And I, I must say the contribution they make to our coastal communities and ultimately to the economy in Newfoundland and Labrador is beyond measure. So big, you know, big, you know, I wish them a, a great season and ultimately to be safe because as we know, it's quite risky out there on the water. Dangerous job. I was curious to see where the price of the shrimp lands, whether it's a rollover at a buck thirty, because the cost of operating the, the fishing enterprises has certainly gone through the roof as well. So, yep, hopefully it's a safe and prosperous season for all hands. Uh, Minister, inside your portfolio. So the Domestic Violence Prevention Action Plan, I know it's a living, breathing document. It doesn't all necessarily have to be on paper, but it did indeed formally lapse uh, in 2019. Why? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm based when I've, and upon my briefings now since I've become minister uh, just a year ago, actually, just last week, um, it's, I've learned, too, that there have been many of these plans launched back as far as the 90s and schemed across many governments over the years. And it's, it's, it's something that's ongoing. I mean, these things don't stop. And as I did mention um, just the other day in the House Assembly, it's, it's not simply a report that we can put on a shelf and it gets dust and, you know, go the violence, the problem of violence goes away. But concrete steps that our government has taken, as I mentioned, like for example, the improvements to the occupational health and safety regulations. Um, and those are including provisions to address workplace harassment and worker armed violence. An updated Family Violence Protection Act. And that broadens the definition, Patty, of violence, expanding to the definition to include psychological, emotional, and financial harm. Um, and so that's, those are tangible measures that we've taken. Also, the introduction of bail supervision and electronic mon- monitoring programs, of course, uh, that helps improve safety of women. And also, as you know, I mean, this was debated in the House just uh, several years ago, the Interpersonal Violence Disclosure Protocol. And what that does, that provides authority for police officers to disclose information regarding the interpersonal violence to a person at risk or to an applicant in accordance with the Interpersonal Violence Disclosure Protocol established by the Lieutenant Governor. Another one, uh, the Protection of Intimate Images Act, also known as revenge porn. Um, If someone was to send around photos or nude photos of someone, of of a person, um, who they were in a relationship with, without their without their permission, of course, there's 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 consequences for that. Also, as I mentioned the other day, in particular, the changes to the Residential Tenancies Act, and that allows for early termination of rental agreements in the cases of domestic violence, um, and as well the Labor Standards Act, and that allows, of course, victims of family violence to take a total of 10 days of leave to escape domestic violence and gender-based violence. And, but these are ongoing measures. I mean, there are 17 groups that, that we're responsible for funding for operational uh, operational funding, of course, from the, from the, women, from the Office of Women and Gender Equality, uh, equality-seeking, violence prevention-seeking. I want to throw uh, a bouquet out to the work that community does. Um, for example, the Safe Harbor Outreach Project. That's a, a program under the St. John Status of Women Council. And they help women in the sex trade, people who are looking to come out of the sex trade, people who are looking to safely stay in the sex trade. And safety, of course, is paramount. There's also another group, and this is under the Thrive Program, 
um, and that this uh, the other organization is what's called the Casey, and that's the Coalition Against Sexual Exploitation of Youth. So it's it's and of course my as you know, Patty, my my mandate. I'm working with the Department of Justice and Public Safety, and of course that crosses into work that the RNC does as well as the RCMP. Yeah, I want to get and, to uh, law enforcement because that's an interesting piece. And so I know there's a lot of work been done, and this is a very complicated matter. But there's a couple of things. I wonder what your relationship, with, whether it be with Minister Hogan and the RNC or the RCMP, on this file, because a caller just yesterday talked about yes, the fact sir. that there's no opportunity to file an online report, so that you don't have to see police officers face-to-face so you can begin the process of reporting domestic violence or gender-based violence so that's not there plus you talked about some potentially negative interactions with police officers their unwillingness to take a report i know that you can't direct uh, law enforcement to do one thing or another but we've got to change the attitude there because the most recent data from 2016 only refers to uh, police reported domestic violence and we know that so many people are out there that are the victims of domestic violence who will not report it what's your role alongside minister Hogan? to ensure that there's a change in uh, process and attitude maybe with the law enforcement agencies because if people don't think that they have a safe place to turn to file a report, they won't. And consequently, the abuse continues. You're absolutely right, Patty. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the caller from the other day. I want to—I was going to mention her. I believe her name was Pam, and she made some really good points um, and valid points. And this—and I really appreciate her for coming and sharing her experiences that she's had with the system. Um, but you're right, and I do work closely with Minister Hogan, and ultimately he is responsible for the oversight, of course, of justice and public safety throughout the jurisdiction of the province. But we certainly have—I uh, work closely with him. We're mandated to work on a lot of things. But I want to invite that caller to, I want her, actually, if she could reach out to my office, I'd certainly like to come in and have, a, have her come in and to have a meeting and take those very valid points because we're getting ready to plan the next Premier's Roundtable on gender equity. Um, we will be giving, it'll be the third one. That's a new initiative, of course, introduced by the Premier. And I co-chair that roundtable, and that takes community stakeholders from across Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, there's lawyers there. There's, there's the police officers. There's people from the indigenous community, people with lived experience, people from the disabilities community, to all come together to talk about all of these matters that affect and, and of course, contribute to gender inequality and, and violence prevention. Um, but absolutely, I want to meet with that lady. Please have her reach out. Certainly, that invite is there to reach out to me through email or to certainly call my office. I, I want to have her come in. And these are all valid points. And the, and the fact is, the conversation is ongoing. There's always time and there's always ways that the, the, the system needs to improve. And um, again, I, I, I really appreciate the points that she made. And these are something now actually that I've reached out and asked for another meeting now with Minister Hogan, because I, as, you, as you can appreciate, the work is ongoing for all of these matters facing violence prevention in our province, just for one. Yeah, no, I guess we should bring Minister Osborne's name into it too, because some of the awareness and education will obviously play an active role. I uh, appreciate your time this morning, Minister Parsons. Uh, happy Easter. That's right. One last point there, and you're Very right. Quickly. Just touched on education. Um, again, it's about systemic and attitude change as well. And I mean, there are some great programs now getting at the grassroots levels at our youth. Those are our most precious, most valuable resources. And to have them learn at a very, very young age that violence is not okay, that's important. And I'm happy to say that our government is doing that. But happy Easter to you and to all your listeners. And again, have a safe uh, season on the water to all harvesters across Newfoundland and Labrador. And thank you for your time, Patty. Your Sue. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Pam Parsons, she's the Minister of Women and Gender Equality, of course, the member for Harbour Grace, Porto Grave. From that, on to something much more lighthearted. Coming up after the break, comedy legend, 
Rick Mercer. He's going to be part of Just for Naps Comedy Night in Canada, taking the show on the road, including a couple of dates at the Arts and Culture Centre here. We'll see what Rick has to say after this. Don't go away. Oh, welcome back to the program. Well, Rick Mercer took Just for Laps Comedy Night in Canada on tour back in 2019. He's back again this year for the 19th edition of that particular tour. Join us on line number four is the host, the man himself, Rick Mercer. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Now, I introduced you before we went to the break as a comedy legend, but according <laughs> to your publicist, you're comedy royalty. <laughs> Is that what they said? <laughs> it's a very distinct difference. It is absolutely a distinct difference and a welcomed one. I got a good chuckle out of it. But welcome back to the program, Rick. It's great to be here. And it's great to be going back out on the road. You know, I did 2019. It was a big deal for me because when I wrapped up the TV show, I really wanted to focus on stand-up. And I bit off this show, which was uh, a huge learning curve because it was from St. John's to Victoria in big theaters from 1,000 seats to 3,000 seats, and for the first time ever, it was an all-Canadian lineup, because I thought, I can't headline Comedy Night in Canada and have a not an all-Canadian lineup, and we sold out, we put a bum in every seat, and it was great, so I leapt at the chance to do it again, and of course, we've been postponed, I think, 11 times, but now we're back, and it's really going to happen, and very excited. What's the first time that you performed on Just for Laughs? Oh, I, I started back at just for last, back in the 22-minute days. The whole cast of 22 Minutes went up probably our second year of the TV show, and we did a gala, and since then, I've gone back and hosted a number of the TV galas. So they wrap the whole festival, which is a mammoth festival, of course, around probably four or five galas in, the, in this beautiful theater there. It's almost 3,800 seats, and I've hosted that a number of times. It's always, it's, it's always incredible. You say that, you know, you want to get back and focus on stand-up, but all those years doing, I don't know what the appropriate uh, reference is, uh, skit comedy or bit comedy or taking it on yeah. the road and all those experiences you've had. You know, some people think, well, comedy is comedy is comedy, right? You're trying to get a laugh. It's no. much different to be putting your, your arm into the rectum of a cow versus get on a stage. Well, I tell you, it was like nothing I ever experienced or tried, really, because... You know, you and I, are, when our generations are not that much different. When you grew up in Newfoundland, there was no stand-up. There was lots of comedy. There was Buddy Wass's name. There was Codco. There were comedy troops. There were, there were lots of things going on, but there was no traditional stand-up comedy. I was an adult on the mainland before I walked into a, a comedy club, and the very first time I went across the country with stand-ups, I was the host, but I, I made a commitment to myself that someday I'm going to do this true stand-up like they did. And, of course... 16, 17 years passed before I went out on the road and did it. But uh, there's nothing like it in the world. It's, it's, it's just incredible. And for an audience to come to a show like this, where you have four comics, you got three comedians at the top of their game, it's, it's a full night, and the laughs start from the minute the lights go up until the lights go down. And I can't think of anything that we need more now than ever. I could always use a laugh. Now, I had Matt Wright on the show, who was an up-and-coming comedian from this province, and I asked him a question about how do you keep your stand-up chops in order so that, you know, with all the slowdowns and no live gigs, then, you know, you kind of maybe get rusty. And he actually incorporated it into his act, and he said, well, come out and see the most least polished prepared comic in Canada today. <laughs> I, <laughs> I heard him on your show saying that. And, of course, he's a great comic, and everyone had to deal with that. I'm kind of going back to my theater chops, because when you 
you're rehearsing theater, you never get to put it in front of an audience until you go into previews. And stand-up is not like that because what stand-ups do is they just go out three, four nights a week and find amateur nights and open mic nights and, and they try everything out and they build everything in front of a crowd. That has been very difficult, of course, during the pandemic. So it's a bit different. So I walk around the block a lot uh, with my AirPods in so people think I'm on the phone and instead in my mind I'm center stage at the Arts and Culture Center and I'm walking up the middle of the street, arms are flapping, I'm doing my bits and that's the way I'm prepping. But I have in the last uh, two weeks been going out into some comedy clubs in, in Toronto and, uh, and that's been fun. We've talked about your process of writing your famous rants which were quite biting and focused. How different is it to prepare those versus your stand-up gig? Well, stand-up is very much storytelling, except for me, of course, there's still, obviously, I'm going to talk about current events and things that are happening in Canada, so it's, it's a different process, and you want more jokes. Like, you realize people are there for a stand-up show, and you want jokes per minute, and you, you work it, and I've been working with two great comedians that I worked with on the Mercer Report for years and years, and, and they're veterans, and, and it's almost like the old Rocky movies. They're the coach, and they're saying, you got to do better, Rocky! We need more jokes, Rock! And and that's the way it's been going. Yeah, cut me, Mick. Okay, so you just put a voice into play, and I know we're trying to keep it all upbeat, but remember the great comics of years gone by, and this week we lost Gilbert Gottfried. What you know oh, about yeah. Gilbert? Well, he was a comics comic. I think I said the same thing about Norm MacDonald, but he absolutely was. He was the comics comic. Uh, they're, they're a special breed. They're the comics that are playing to the other comics in the room, and that's the most important audience for them. And, you know, Gilbert Gottfried was famous for emptying a room and yet having all the other comedians laughing to kill themselves. Uh, on a personal note, I didn't know him, but... All, always over the years, I can't tell you how many times people talked about what a great guy that man was and what a great family man he was and, and how it, he was a very biting comic, but how it was, in real life, he was very different. He was just a very hardworking, straight-laced, very good guy in that Hollywood, Los Angeles world. So it's a big loss for comedy. And obviously, you know, for me anyway, it came out of nowhere. I watched uh, him do a Pee Wee Herman routine at an award show on uh, YouTube uh, yesterday or the day before. It was really quite something. Okay, let's get back on track here with HaHaHa.com. So you got a couple of gigs coming up in town to win. So April 25th and 26th at the Arts and Culture Center. And uh, I, of course, I still get such a huge thrill of playing the Arts and Culture Center because my earliest memories, showbiz memories, are being brought there from school. And, you know, you're like in grade three looking up at the ceiling and shaking your head back and forth and making all those lights you know play with your eyes and uh, seeing the big stage and going oh my god look at these people on this stage so I can't wait to hit the Arts and Culture Center stage that's the 25th and the 26th and I want to mention who I'm on the road with uh, Iman El Husseini this incredibly funny woman from Montreal she ended up in New York she's tours the world constantly. She's a she's a Just for Laughs Festival fan favorite consistently year in, year out. Dave Mirhej has got a Netflix special. He won the Juno for Best Comedy Special. Ivan Decker, who I went out with before, one of my very favorite comedians, also won the Juno for Best Comedy. These are these pe these people are just at the top of their game. It's phenomenal. And Ivan Decker 
The last tour I did, every single night I stood in the wings and watched him, and I was in awe of him. And uh, I can't wait to get out and see what he's up to. I've seen his act. He's absolutely brilliant, no doubt about it. I'm speaking about Evan or Ivan Decker, pardon me. So, I mean, you're going to talk about things that are happening today, and God knows there's enough material out there to fill not only 18 prestigious theaters, but 100 million in theaters. <laughs> I know. I don't want to give, give away your actor on the show, but give us a couple of the uh, public issues that are on the go today that you're going to take a swing at. Well, you know, well, there's a conservative leadership race happening, of course, and that's uh, that's unfolding like something we've never seen before. In my lifetime, I've never seen a leadership race where a candidate, Pierre Polyev, is getting 1,000, 2,000 people out just for a leadership race. I mean, that just doesn't happen. The members show up during an election. They don't show up during a leadership race, so that's kind of fascinating. We have Justin Trudeau sputtering hopefully towards the end of his career. But uh, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but obviously that's got to be touched on. And, of course, the whole country is emerging from this pandemic, and that means a whole lot of different things. It does indeed. And one thing it's going to need is more and more laughs because, you know, we try to start this show with a couple of positive notes before we get into the unfortunate stories of the day. So, if, folks, if you're looking to get a laugh, the Just for Laughs Comedy Night in Canada is just for you. Just go to hahaha.com and get all the dates. We're going to be on the road for quite a long time 25th and 26th of april right here at the action culture center in st john's always great to have you on the show rick thanks patty take good care have a great day you too man bye bye uh, comedy royalty rick mercer <laughs> let's go ahead and take a break for the news when we come back we're speaking with you saturday morning join us for the irish newfoundland show send your request to irish nl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com welcome back to the program let's go to line number two jeremy you're on the air How's it going, Patty? Doing okay. How you doing? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, just got a couple of questions now about uh, the upcoming rises in, uh, you know, the diesel. Okay. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I'm up in Labrador, eh? And, uh, yeah, the price of diesel has gone through the roof. It's uh, $3.07 or something. Well, let's see here. Uh, Churchill Falls, I had it right in front of me a little while ago. Uh, yeah, Western Labrador, it's three dollars and seven cents, three ten per liter in Churchill Falls, which is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just crazy, but like, it's uh, hard going on for anyone with a diesel pickup. You know what I mean? Well, it's hard going for everyone who has a, any attachment to diesel because whether that be the impact out of the grocery store shelves and for the fishing enterprises, the price of fuel, and for truckers and for you with a diesel-fueled pickup truck, what kind of truck are you driving? Yeah, uh, I got a 2003. I got an old Duramax diesel, but uh, yeah, it's expensive. Sure it is. It's expensive to fill it off, you know what I mean? Almost, I guess I'll tell you now it'd be almost $300 to fill it off. Boys, oh boys. Do you do a lot of going? Like, do you have long-distance commute for work or what have you? Uh, not really, but, you know, just even just, like, you know, cutting around town, going to the grocery store, stuff like that is, is just heinous, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I get it. Uh, you know, we've adjusted our driving habits and who drives what car for what purpose. My wife uh, lives very close. We live very close to her job, her school. I have a bit of a longer commute, so everyone's trying to figure out how we're going to accommodate these issues. And even people were looking for the budget last week to do something about the price of gas and home heating fuels and diesel, and they didn't. And, you know, they've added some additional supports for some people, but there's an awful lot yet to be done. I don't know where it ends. Yeah. Oh, don't look like it's going to end anytime soon. No, nope, doesn't sure. look like it. Uh, another question. 
I've seen there yesterday on, uh, on the news that Justin Trudeau is putting, I guess, tax on new vehicles again. More taxes on trucks. Not that I know of. No? More tax on trucks? That? No. I guess it's like a $4,000 increase on uh, pickup trucks. I'm not sure. Uh, I'd do a bit more information. i read a bit more information on it. But, uh, yeah, I guess there's uh, some kind of taxes, extra taxes going on if you go and buy a brand-new vehicle. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. I, and I'll tell you what. For last Thursday... The amount of information that came flowing just made it pretty difficult to try to absorb it all. So, yeah, I suppose I'll have to have a look at it. And there's a new tax on lux- luxury vehicles and things like if you buy your own private jet or a yacht or something. I didn't know if that included uh, pickup trucks, though, to be honest with you. Yeah, oh, okay, okay. It might not be now. I'm not really 100% sure. I never really read into it much. I've just seen it there. But, uh, yeah, that's all I got for today anyways. Yeah, I really thought it was about luxury stuff. Uh, does it include a pickup truck? You know what? I, I admit, I have not had a chance to even wrap my mind around everything that's inside of those two big documents, but I will. I just popped it up here just for the purpose of our conversation. And I'll read this. is What's considered a luxury good for purposes of the new text? It's called the Select Luxury Items Tax Act. Okay. Passenger vehicles with a date of manufacture after 2018, typically suitable for personal use, including coupes, sedans, station wagons, sports cars, personal, uh, passenger vans, minivans, SUVs, and passenger trucks will be subjected vehicles for the purposes of the new tax. Motorcycles and certain off-road vehicles, such as all-terrain vehicles and snowmobiles, racing cars, are not in the scope of the luxury tax, motorhomes and the like. And similarly, ambulances, horses, and other police vehicles and what have you. So that's as much as I can tell you right now. But uh, you've now put something on my reading list for this afternoon, and that would be figuring out this new luxury tax. Perfect, Patty, perfect. Yeah, perfect, perfect. No, we listen to you every day. Good. Uh, First-time caller, you know, long-time listener. But, uh, yeah, that's all I got anyways for today. Well, I'm glad you called, and thanks for listening to the program. Yeah, thank you. All the best. Have a good day. You too, man. Bye-bye. Okay. All right, so someone just sent a link from the star. Planning on taxing larger vehicles, which will indeed include trucks. And so, of course, the comments coming from the province of Alberta, where there's an awful lot of trucks, but include this province for, because there are for sure a lot of trucks on our roads. Uh, let's go to line three. Martin, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Same thing. Um... I'm calling about uh, the government of Newfoundland Labrador is running beautiful tourist commercials on TV. They're done very, very nice. So when you wish to go to Newfoundland, you need a rental car. So I checked that out. And you can get a rental car during the month of June during the entire month of July and the month of August. So for the whole three months, there's not a single car to be gotten in Newfoundland. So, I mean, people make reservations to go and visit, but when you can't get a rental car, what do you do? 
It's a great question. And, uh, you know, the province says that they're trying to find creative solutions, but tourist season is upon us. People are making their plans now. If there's any fly in the ointment, which includes the inability to get a rental car or the extraordinary cost of getting a rental car, that might be the reason why people don't come. So I know it's not unique to this province. There's a rental car issue right across the world. You know, back when the pandemic struck, the rental car company sold off their fleets. Then when they tried to replenish it, it became harder and harder to even buy a car, whether it be with semiconductor issues or what have you so the question you're posing is a big one we heard from a lady who operates a bread and a bed and breakfast and she said inside the uh, span of two days she lost six bookings and the reason offered was canker rental um this is not really uh, something that has to do with the pandemic because i used to live in newfoundland in 2002 and i listened frequently to your program think bass jameson did it at that time and uh, I remember a man calling at that time, 2002, complaining about the same thing. So this has been going on for a long time. Absolutely. Also, a friend of mine uh, used to work at a Marriott on Duckworth Street. And he said that that was in 2010. And he said that guests often complained they had to take taxis all over the place because they couldn't get a rental car. So uh, I made reservations and then I thought a little while ago. And so then I thought, well, I had to make a reservation for a car. So I can't get a car. So I had to cancel my reservation. And now (laughs) I could pay $130 in cancellation fees. So not so nice. It's the furthest thing from ideal, and you're absolutely right to say that rental cars has been an issue in this province for quite a long time. Unlike on the mainland, where they do things like a deadhead run. So I would rent a car in Jasper, Alberta. I would drive to Edmonton International Airport, and so whether or not the company would keep it there to rent from there, or Jasper wants it back, they'll send someone in to do a deadhead run, is what they call it. They give you like a hundred bucks to drive the rental cars back, so they can very easily manipulate the rental car availability on the mainland, we've got a problem here. And I don't know where the answer is. I think we're eventually going to have to look at more informal car sharing applications because there's lots of people who would be happy enough to rent out their vehicle for a couple of weeks or a month over the summer and put a few extra bucks in their pocket. I know it has some insurance implications and, you know, having your vehicle driven like someone stole it, but there's got to be a way to figure this out because if we lose 10% of potential visitors because of a rental car issue, that's an awful lot of money left on the table. And now you finally have a, a low-cost airline flying in. Yep. And now you don't have cars. And as you say from uh, this lady from this B&B, I was going to bring up the same thing. Maybe some entrepreneurial Newfoundlander can start, uh, say, a B&B, but then instead of uh, a room in your house or uh, the whole house or what, uh, what have you, uh, uh, cars. As you say, from the private people can rent out a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the only solution. Well, it's got to be part of it. Anyway, that's all I have to say. You have yourself a nice Easter. I wish you the same, Martin. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Take good care. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Okay, okay so... 
I don't know how quickly there will be one of the ride-sharing apps associated with this province and what exactly the details will be, but you have to imagine it's going to have to happen sooner than later because when the government says they're going to work on creative solutions, there's only so many options out there. If we're going to put a car under somebody, then if the rental companies don't have them, or if they do, I mean, I've seen a couple of bills that the uh, companies are charging for access to one of their rental vehicles. I think this was for an SUV. And it was madness how much it cost for two weeks worth of rental. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was thousands of dollars anyway. So I would assume, and I'll do a little bit of digging around, but you got to think before the tourist season kicks in in full, there will be one of these rideshare apps applied here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, I guess it requires some adjustments and approvals at the PUB because that's the regulator associated with the insurance business. I think that's the way it will have to work, but I guess we'll find out in due time. Let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to uh, Portugal Cove St. Phillips Town Councillor Daryl Harding. Daryl, you're on the air. Daryl Harding, line number one, you're on the air. See his pot up, Dave? Daryl going once, Daryl going twice. Daryl's gone. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. <laughs> Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, Patty, first of all, uh, that was a great chat with Rick Mercer. God almighty, he's, prov- he's provided so many hours, countless hours of levity and laughter. And well, it must be a wonderful job. And he so loves it by the sound of his voice. It's a great job. He's so good. And, you know, the partnership not only in life but in business with his partner, Jerry Lons, is something to behold, boy. The boys are great fellas. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was nice nice this morning. Thank you for doing that. Patty, uh, uh, calling up on two things, actually. The fact you had Pam Parsons called in this morning, and very professional the way she got on. Uh, A very light comment, but I was listening to another program yesterday to broadcast, and they were asking, uh, they were uh, doing a piece on the uh, mackerel, the shutting down of the mackerel fishery uh, by the federal minister uh, in the House of Assembly. There were questions from the member from Bonavista and the fisheries minister was supposed to answer. Patty, it was embarrassing, the behavior of the members in the House of Assembly in shouting, shouting down, desk-thumping, bawling, just like children. And it was, was, was all over the air. And I, I don't know, you would never get away with that in a workplace. You know, it was, it was, it was just, I cringed. I can imagine those good members who were really good and, you know, behaving in a professional manner and doing the business of the people what they must be thinking well you know there's a few things to that one number one is i've given up watching i just cannot handle it anymore um (laughs) and and secondly they must really you know look in the mirror in the bathroom and rehearse their forced laughter because some of the things that they just break into hysterical laughter is that stuff that's simply not funny like i don't know what they're doing or what they think they heard but it's not funny and it's just the same old same old the the beginning of just going as far downhill as it has and i know we want to see things recorded we want to be able to know exactly what's discussed we can go to the written record and answer it but people like to watch it is i guess it's like watching a car wreck but the fact that the cameras are in the room has made it worse it's just made more theatrics out of politics and policy. Oh, it was, it was, you know, we're paying for that? Good sweet God. I mean, do they have any sense of decency? Do they have any sense of shame? You know, uh, Premier Fury and the, the, the member for the PC party and, and Mr. Din, the acting leader, uh, Mr. Brazel thinks PC. Do they have any shame? You know, can they reach out to their members and say, hey, if men, women, shut up. 
People are paying us to be here. Good money to be here. Shut up, behave. We don't do that in, ch- in children in school. Anyway, Patty, that wasn't the main topic, but I, I see. But where you're I'm going to make one, one last comment on it. They think that they score political points with these little salvos of mindless jibber jabber that they throw across the floor. But I think that if people were watchers of the shenanigans inside the House of Assembly, the parties and the individuals that handle themselves with the most professionalism, hand decorum, and respect will absolutely be able to translate that into votes because I think people are tired of it. So if you can put your yourself on display as someone who's above the fray, that's better for them, politically speaking. I know they get caught up in, you know, the whole mob mentality and the, the partisanship and banging on the desk and all that stuff, and they think, you know, it's the solidarity within caucus, when in fact, that might be something to laugh about in the caucus meeting rooms, but it's nothing to scoff at when the rest of us are having to put up with this childish nonsense. So whoever wants to establish some person as the adult in the room has a big political future ahead of them. Yeah, it didn't happen yesterday. Patty, my second issue, uh, I'll try not to take up too much of your time. No problem. Caller, callers to the call center, for example, if you're calling about an EI matter, you're calling about, up about your claim, uh, and you, you get an agent to help you, which happens so many times. They're mostly absolutely good agents. Um, uh, the... Um, when they put you on hold, um, you know, they'll say, okay, I've, I've got to check on this. I'll be back in a few minutes. And they research it. They may speak to a supervisor about you or something like that while they're doing it. And you listen to the hold music. I wasn't aware, but even though you call in and, and they say, hey, this may be recorded for quality purposes, and you get that little blurb, you know, at the beginning, you're going to be recorded. Yep. When they put you on hold, you can't hear what's going on in their end. But even though you're listening to music, anything you say is still recorded and listened to by the by the uh, by the center. Uh, so, for example, if if while you're on hold, you're having a conversation with your partner, or you're bawling at the kids, or you're talking about your cancer treatment, or you're you're talking about the thousand dollars that Joe gave you that he owed you from last year when he helped paint his house that could disqualify human benefits or something like that. That's all being recorded. People think that they're having a private moment, but they're not. And I think that's morally wrong. I don't think that should happen. You know, I I don't think that people should be misled. I think if they're going to be put on hold, the agents should say to the people, listen, while you're listening to this hold music, we can still hear you. You're still being recorded, and anything you you say can be used against you. Yeah, there's a couple of entities, and I believe CRA is one, where they warn you that it's not only when you're speaking to the agent, but the entirety of the call will be recorded. It's important to make that disclosure up front because you can't be caught off guard, and you should know exactly what's going on as it pertains to being recorded. But if we're going to be completely fair, they should be able to establish something when, when the agent actually gets on the phone to speak with you, the recording begins then, and not a second before. Yeah, but even when they put you on hold, I mean, yeah, a- absolutely. When they put you on hold, that recording should stop. And when they bring you back in for the discussion about what your subject material you're cutting, it should start again. Sure. But anything, any private conversation you're having in your home with anybody else should not be a part of the recording at CRA or Service Canada for Employment Immigration. And it's embarrassing that it is, and yet nobody seems to want to, well, we would want to talk about that. You know, maybe Seamus O'Regan, he's a minister of labor or something, maybe he'll become involved in this and say, hey, if you're calling about your EI claim and they put you on hold, they shouldn't secretly record you and, and use it against you in some way if it applies to how they can shouldn't happen. No, because, you know, while you're on hold, who knows what you're engaged in. 
Yeah, yeah, who knows? You know, and it's none of their, none of their business. It shouldn't be, but they've taken the thing, oh, well, that's it, you're fair of all. You think you're being, you have a, a moment of privacy, but hey, bud, you don't. You know, we're recording you. And uh, that that's terrible, absolutely terrible. It shouldn't happen. It should be embarrassing to them. And that's, that kind of secrecy is you know, disgusting to me. Anyway, anyway, thanks very much, Patty. You have a great day. The very same to you, Mike. Thanks for the call. All right. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, will I take Daryl quick before the break here, David? Yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, say good morning to town councillor down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. That's Daryl Harding. Daryl, you're on the air. Can you hear me now, sir? I can hear you now. I know you want to make a quick clarification. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, – too bad you're going to break because there's a little bit more there. But um, I just wanted to point out that uh, everybody on council in Portugal Cove votes their confidence or how they feel, and, and they have the right to do that. Uh, in this particular case, however, there hasn't even been a vote of council yet. I just wanted to clarify that because of the misinformation, again, uh, put out in the media by one of the councillors. I want to say that the uh, there's an information session tonight pertinent to this, and uh, – and there's a very good group of people that uh, are thinking about the future and making the best of a bad situation with survivors in mind. Uh, survivors and representatives of, of survivors in our town have been part of this process uh, and have been contacted by this committee that was formed of good people uh, with good intentions. We lost an opportunity on two previous occasions to save uh, possible heritage sites, uh, excuse me, heritage registry. Uh, buildings, uh, one in St. Phillips, which was tore down, and one in Portugal Cove that I was baptized and christened and confirmed in. And uh, this time, I think uh, these well-intentioned people are doing what they figure is uh, good for the town, and, and we'll see where it goes. In regards to the, uh, the group's plan, it's very well laid out. Uh, one of the leaders is a very well-known activist that deals with and supports survivors of trauma on a daily basis. Unfortunately, Mr. Will has chosen to go at this from a, an uninformed position, even though the information has been circulated to all councillors by our director of the committee, which I'm chair of, our Economic Development, Communications, Marketing and Tourism, which states this is not a heritage status that we're promoting. It's a list, a registry, a simple list. Uh, it doesn't restrict anything with the properties whatsoever. And again, Councillor Will is very familiar with this. If the group is successful, they will be establishing an arts, a wellness, and a heritage centre, not for profit, to operate, uh, and run a cultural centre there as well. It's all in their plan. People need to read their plan and go and and uh, zoom in tonight for their meeting uh, and their presentation. My decisions are going to be made from an informed decision. What's so the downside? All the information and okay. experts like Mrs. Erin Gallant uh, are not self-serving promoters. Uh, trauma victims have been part of this conversation, and I don't want to see them used as pawns for somebody's political position. Go ahead, sir. But what, what's the downside in a councillor being opposed to anything, even if there's accommodations made for victims, even if there's experts that are bringing Absolutely. a forward proposal? What's the problem with Mr. Will saying that he's opposed to the designation of heritage status? I'm not against that at all, Teddy. I'm sorry if I didn't clear it by the beginning. Councillor Will has promoted himself in the media as being the only councillor that's against it, and uh, we haven't even voted on it yet. Uh, so that's uh, that's my only point there. Council Will has every right to vote in any way that he wants, the same as all six of us and the mayor. Uh, but uh, only one person speaks for all of council, and that's the mayor. And in this particular case, going on the news to tell people that he's the only one against this 
and utilizing the positions, uh, the, un, the uninformed, even though he has the same documentation as the rest of us, the uninformed position that by giving a heritage listing of a structure on that property, it would somehow uh, reduce the return to the survivors. Uh, survivors are part of this conversation, this committee, this uh, arts, wellness, and cultural committee that will be presenting to the town tonight and to the people of the town tonight about their plans and about their structure and, and excuse me, and their uh, their hope to be able to do something for our town and take everybody into consideration. There are some shadows for sure, and the survivors need to be supported and recognized, but there are also some wonderful memories. Uh, births, uh, confirmations, weddings, um, the cemetery and access to that cemetery can be enhanced properly. And I'm going to take all the information in before we vote. There has been no vote. There has been no singular councillor that has stood up against anything or nobody's even voted on the issue. So that was my point at the time. And uh, hopefully everybody will get out tonight at 7.30 to hear this uh, hear this meeting and see this presentation. And uh, again, this is... Uh, um, we have there's a deadline of June the second to uh, to get tenders in and stuff and let's explore let's have an open mind and let's not uh, let's not uh, take a self-professing position and look for what's the greater good for everybody involved in this. I appreciate the time this morning, Daryl, and the clarification. So, are you willing to tell us how you're planning on voting, or are you still absorbing info? Uh, well, I'm going to be going to that information session tonight, and uh, I have an open mind. I'm very supportive of what I've heard so far, and the fact that there will be no restrictions on the value of the land uh, by what the town is doing or proposing to do for heritage listing of the structures on the properties. Appreciate the time, Daryl. Thanks very much. Thank you, Betty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Daryl Harding. He's one of the members of council. In Portugal, call up St. Phillips. Okay, let's take a break. Do not go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Just to clarify, we just spoke with Daryl Harding, one of the town councillors down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. He said the meeting tonight is at 7.30. It's at 7 o'clock. So not 7.30, 7 o'clock. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Rachel. You're on the air. Hi, yes. Uh, I'm calling in about uh, that money that the seniors is supposed to get. Uh, when is that coming out, do you know? It really depends what money you're talking about. There is a yeah. bunch of different pots of money that is coming out. For instance, there's a, if you're on income support, there's going to be a check issued already by uh, the first week of April. That was 200 bucks for a single, $400 for families. The top-up of 10% for folks who receive the seniors' benefit, that happens as soon as the budget gets passed. Uh, the $500 one-time time check from the federal government if you indeed applied for pandemic support and it impacted your GIS your guaranteed income supplement there's a one-time check of $500 going out the week of April 18th April the 18th yeah okay that's the one that I was calling about okay Okay, thank you so much, and happy Easter to everybody. The same to you, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Grand Falls, Windsor. Buckins. That's Chris Tibbs. Chris, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not bad. Thanks. How about you? Uh, not very good, Patty. Uh, I, I got a call in, and, and, and uh, I feel compelled to call and talk about the healthcare system throughout the province, of course, but especially in uh, central Newfoundland Labrador today. Um, yesterday, I spoke with a 44-year-old gentleman who had a heart attack. Um, he's scared, obviously anxious. He's on a gurney in the hallway. This is day number four now, uh, with nine other patients 
uh, waiting to go to St. John's to get some more testing done. Uh, they're telling him he could be there another week like that, like he is right now. Um, Patty, I know that the people in central Newfoundland Labrador, all over uh, across Newfoundland Labrador, are doing their best. The doctors, the nurses, the support staffs, we cannot thank you enough for everything you are doing. They get it. Unfortunately, with the current diversions from the uh, Conagra Peninsula, Green Bay, our hospital is overrun, Patty. It is completely overrun. Um, you know what? We have Dr. Lynette Powell out there. She has done, been a great advocate for years and years, trying to speak out for the doctors. The government have known what's been happening for the seven years that they've had it, Patty. Um, Dr. Lynette Powell, homegrown, grassroots as you can get when it comes to doctors in Newfoundland Labrador, still a young doctor. She's ready to close up shop as well. Uh, we've lost doctors throughout Buckins, Fogo Island, uh, Bishop's Falls. Patty, we are in a crisis. The, the time for rhetoric is over, I know, but we, we are in a crisis right now, especially in central Newfoundland and Labrador. Yesterday, as you know, we asked that um, Premier Fury do something at the top level, uh, take uh, put, put uh, Minister Haggy somewhere else and get some fresh eyes in there, get some, get some uh, new ideas in there. Because we need help in this province, and it's not there right now, and, and we need something very drastic to be done before this falls off the cliff. What does shuffling in a new minister practically get us there? Because if we're talking about, you know, hiring more doctors, I don't think the province is opposed to hiring doctors. It's whether or not doctors want to take a job here. So what do we actually get with changing the minister? I mean, I've heard the call. I saw Mr. Brasley yesterday make reference sure. to it's time for Haggy to step down or to be removed from his portfolio. But I'm not sure to what end. Like, what actually changes? Yeah, I get it, Patty. But, but seven years for one minister is a long time. And I don't know. Maybe we will get some fresh ideas. There has to be something else to be done. I know that Minister Haggy says that we are on par when it comes to recruitment and retention packages for this province as the rare throughout Atlantic Canada. Well, Patty, you got. Uh, let's let's be honest here. With the landscape we have, if 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 you're offering a doctor in rural Newfoundland and Labrador the same package you're offering them in Nova Scotia, most of them are going to pick Nova Scotia at this point in time. So we need some sort of new ideas. You know, the NLMA. We've met with them several times. They've come out with suggestions. The nurses' union have been screaming for a long time. Patty, I don't have all the answers either. I really don't. But I tell you what, we are at a breaking point, and the people, my family, my friends, my constituents that are working in the hospital. Grand Falls, Windsor, they have had enough. The patients have had enough. We need some sort of supports before this dam breaks. Okay. I mean, no one denies that something has to give. And, you know, it doesn't matter what label you put on it. It's urgent or it's a crisis or it's a problem. It's whatever people th think it is. And how it impacts their life is different than it impacts their neighbor, possibly. But uh, no one is, in, uh, is disagreeing that we've got to see some positive change on this front. And, you know, whether or not the establishment of primary care clinics, collaborative clinics, is going to be a help, and I think it will. Okay. Then whether or not we're going to remove some of the hurdles for nurse practitioners to deal with the issues that they're yeah. training and accredited to deal with and maybe be able to uh, bill MCP directly, that can help. It's maximize the scope of practice for everyone in the field, including the pharmacists, for instance, that's going to be a help. But I'm not really sure what in short order is going to change with the numbers of doctors. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic on it. I'm just nope. trying to be realistic is what, what are we thinking will be a new idea? So, for instance, do you have one? Well, you just summed up a couple of things there. I truly believe it's not necessarily about getting more doctors. I, I truly believe that it's the point of keeping the doctors we have here by giving in the supports. Like you just said, with the nurse practitioners, with the pharmacists. When you have some of these small town doctors, Patty, Newfoundland, Labrador, 
they're not just there for, for, for the eight or 10 hour shift. When they go out to the grocery store, when they, you know, they're, on, they're basically on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We need some supports for them. And right now it just seems like a snowball effect where, okay, well, doctors are leaving, so there's no supports for the doctors that are here, which is going to put more strain on them and make them leave again as well. So I think some of the things that you just said are definitely some great ideas. Um, and, but you know what? I, I truly believe that we need to put some more. If it's money, so be it. But we need to put some more into, uh, into retention and attraction. It has to be there. Uh, and for instance, one of my ideas, Patty, um, I'm going to be meeting with Marathon Gold uh, next week or the week after, just after the Easter break here. Um, I'm going to sit down with the, with the Marathon Gold. We've already talked about it a little bit, actually, myself and Tim Williams, uh, about attracting some uh, people to work with Marathon Gold who possibly could have some spouses who are in the medical field and attract those people there. Sure. I mean, it's an all-encompassing package. A recruitment package can't be simply fo- focused on the healthcare practitioner. It's their family, what the amenities are, what's there for their children, what can their partner be, possibly be able to do in one community or another. It's got to be a catch-all. And I really do think that communities actually have to pick up their individual games as well and be part of the recruitment as opposed to thinking government's here to save your life. You know, I think even a small example like what happened on Bell Island, if communities were part of the package itself then I think they'd have a better chance. And that's, you know, I know it's a complicated matter and it's not necessarily their job, but all hands are going to have to play a role here. We just are. We're going to have to, you know, stop pretending and believing that only the government can make a pragmatic difference, whether it be examples like the Shorefast Foundation and or how they do uh, collaborative business on the Bonavista Peninsula. Something has got to be a change. You know, I hate the political sloganeering like changes in the air and all that stuff on the budget, blah, but... There has to be change, and it's got to start with us, not necessarily politicians. Uh, let me ask you, now that we're talking about doctors, I have to say I'm a little bit confused with what went on regarding Premier Fury keeping his credentials alive by doing some surgeries. I think he has to do 120 days' work within a three-year span. Apparently, that all of a sudden, that's some sort of issue. Wouldn't the ultimate downside be if his credentials went by the wayside and it took a lapse of time after his political career to get back into the operating theater? So what, what's the issue that your party's trying to make on this front? Uh, well, for for ourselves, Patty, I, and I see the point. I totally see your point. Uh, but for ourselves, uh, do we want a, a 24-7 premier or a part-time premier? And I'll just give you an example, Patty. Um, there's been many times over the past years uh, that uh, that I've been asked to go back to Alberta. N- not the same by no means, uh, but you know what? I could I could have went back to Alberta making 700 bucks a day drilling on a rig and it, totally in my realm of scope as well. I chose not to do it. I'm an MHA, Patty. I want to stick as an MHA. So I get where you're coming from, and, and I, I, I see where the outcry comes. But this province needs a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week premier, not a part-time premier, not somebody that goes off and, 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 and sees Zelensky in person up in Ottawa on the first day the House of Assembly opens, because in 20 years from now, it's going to be a great story to tell that he was there at that time. We need a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week seven premier, and that's what this province needs. That, De- that was our issue. Devil's advocate. So, sure. of yeah. course, up to, there was absolutely zero need in this world for the premier to be up to hear Zelensky speak, President Zelensky speak to the House of Commons. None. Absolutely zero. I agree. None. We watched it here, and it was just the same thing. But how about if there was also, and I'm, I'm just playing, taking the other side of the conversation for the obvious reasons. How sure. about if that was a meeting that was partially uh, responsible for securing Beta North, for instance? Because it's not just up there doing that. You know full well when people get a chance to bend the ear of the prime minister, it's not going to simply be about his socks or how he's feeling or what's, what's he up to or what he thinks about Ukraine. So what if other pieces of business were attended to that have actually been a benefit to the province? 
I may be mistaken, Patty, and I'd have to go back through Hanser to check. And again, I may be mistaken, but I believe we asked him that question. Yeah, you I, may you have. Know. I don't know. Yeah, if he met with the premier when he was up here and I, I, about Bader North, and I don't think we got the answer of yes, I did. Again, I, you know, I may be mistaken, uh, but if that's the case, it would, it, would, it would have been an awful coincidence. Patty, this province is crumbling, and to be out of the House on the first day of the House Assembly opens, is it, it's, uh, it's disrespectful to the people of the province, in my opinion. He should have been there. Choose another day. No argument. He should have been there. You know, if yeah. there's a real reason to be up there where, you know, there was an agenda that we can hold uh, anybody to account for what they're talking about, whether or not they achieved their goals, that's one thing. But listening to Zelensky, uh, even though I know it's powerful and poignant and timely, it's still not something that we need to take front row seat on. You know, we've got things going on right here in the province that requires Absolutely. full attention. I appreciate the time this morning. And interestingly enough, regarding what's being deemed a crisis in central health regarding doctors, uh, Premier Haggis is actually going to be on on the show sometime after 11.30, I believe, and that's where we started our conversation. I, I, I'll, be, I'll be listening to him, Patty. I'm going to wish everybody a happy, safe Easter weekend. Uh, but again, the people of Grand Falls, Windsor, that are working in, in the ERs, that are overrun, we are with you. We're trying to do everything we can to help you, and I just want to thank them all for their, their tireless work, Patty. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Chris Tibbs, PC member for Grand Falls, Windsor, Buckins. Uh, is it break time? Yeah, it's break time. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. I'm going to go to line number five. Debbie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I have a, just a very simple question. Could you clarify what you meant by the 10% has to be approved by the, the budget has to be approved before 10? Is that is that what you're saying? Well, as far as traditionally speaking, everything in the budget only gets enacted when the budget gets past and so that that's all it was same thing as it pertains to the true sense of uh, extra carbon tax on gasoline it only happens when that piece of legislative measures have just gone gone away that's all is that is that both federally and provincially well it, it's always the case with budgets you know there can be some immediacy for supports like for instance the the emergency response benefit wasn't part of a benefit so they have the ability to vote something through at, on a standalone basis in the house of commons or the house of assembly but this piece of business and it's attended to so it's coming so yep they're all gone on Easter holiday. Must be nice. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. No problem, Debbie. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And uh, just another point of clarification. This is coming from one of the members of Parliament's uh, office. Da, 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 da. So with the one-time payment for GIS, so I got this info straight from CRA, that it was a one-time payment of $500. This member's uh, staffer says that... It's not potentially not just $500. It's the entire amount calculated that the recipient lost. So if you're negative impact, because if you got some of the pandemic supports and it affects, of course, your income, and that's how they measure whether or not you qualify for the guaranteed income supplement. If your negative loss was more than $500, that's going to be covered in full. So says this particular staffer. Whether that comes with the upfront one-time check of $500 and then a subsequent check, I don't know. But I'll try to get the absolute straight up as accurate information as we possibly can so that you have it in your mind. Okay, let's go to line number one. Arthur, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Yes, this is Arthur Bill from College School. Welcome to the show. Yes, sir. Uh, ever since the budget came down, I haven't heard no news about the funds for do the roads in Newfoundland Labrador. They brought down the budget and uh, I've been waiting ever since to know how much money is in the, is in the budget for do the roads in Newfoundland Labrador. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but of course the roads are, well, the, the whole concept of 
the gas tax was to fuel road repair, bridge construction, all those types of things. So, I mean, the roads, let's see here. $151.4 million in highway paving, bridges, and culverts, which reflects an, impre- an increase of approximately $10 million in budget 2022. The total pot of money in transportation was $169.5 million. Okay, but the thing is, the thing is right now, Eric Hosko from, from Hosko to Northern Arm is nothing but potholes. Yeah. And at this COMEX, the person in the potholes, don't do the job because every fall, when the, when the plow comes down again, it's, uh, it takes all the stuff out of again. Oh, everybody gets that, 100%, sir. Yes. So not only in Costco, and it's, it's all over Newfoundland, same thing. Everybody's talking about the, the potholes. But when, when, the, when she came on the, about down the budget, there's no extra money, and the minister never come on and explain that there's, there's no money for duty roads this year. Well, like I just told you the numbers, and that absolutely is more. It wasn't so long ago the province was spending less than $100 million on road work, and this year in Budget 2022, they say it's approximately 151.4. But that includes everything inside of paving, bridges, culverts. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, but, uh, but, but my point was this, that uh, at this time, I never heard no news, so that's why I overlooked that part, because... I count the rural situation where I live too. You're right what you're saying there about, about the culvert and stuff like that. I know that. But there's no extra money for that, for, for the roads, this year. Well, there is. Uh, it's just, I mean, I guess road work season's coming up, and how and when and if people get some new uh, blacktop where they live, I, I don't know. I can't speak specifically to the Botwood area, but there is money in the budget for roads. There, there certainly is. Okay, okay, that's, that's okay, but still for all, I'd like for to come on and, and tell the people this year, in, in advance, break the, break the rules. I know it's right down in the past, they, they had the washout over by Port Ambassador there last fall. We made that big washout. But the thing is, we, we, still, we still got oaks in, in, our, in our roads. You're not getting an argument from me or anybody else listening to the program because we all know the situation regarding roads from stem to stern. That's true. We all get roads, but if, if people don't complain and talk about it, we would be like this all, all the fall. Yeah, well, I guess tenders are already gone out the door, uh, which is a good thing because you got to get an early start because we have a short road work season. And your area, I'd have to have a look to see where it's been prioritized or if it is at all. So I, I do know that the money is there. Now, the province takes in way more money in gas tax than it actually spends on road work. But, I mean, I don't know if that's a, the, uh, a situation associated with just how many crews are out there and accessibility and time and the length of the paving season. I don't know. But the gas tax was originally all about the road and we've taken way more than we spend on roads. Yep. Okay. Well, October or September this year, when it comes around, if we, have, if we don't have anything done with the potholes from Northern Arm to Collis Cove, I'm going to phone you again and let you know that we're, we're, I'm still the same as we still spring. I'll welcome your call. And if it's any better, I'll let you know that too. Well, that's important. It's one thing when we throw, uh, throw bricks at them, quite another if we actually get to what we need, and that road work included. So you let me know one way or the other, Arthur. I do that well, sir. Good man. Okay. All yep. the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away.
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Joan, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? That's good. I'm, I'm well, thank you. Um, I'm calling from sunny Bradenton, Florida again. Um, I know um, I put on a, uh, I was on VOCM a while ago asking somebody if they would, uh, if they are up here in Florida and are going back uh, any time and they're going back in a car or a truck and driving back to St. John's, if they would be kind enough to get in touch with me to bring a few items back for me to St. John's. Now, we don't expect it to be done free. We'll actually pay the person to bring it back for us. So I was wondering if I could leave my telephone number Go ahead. Uh, up here. Uh, it's uh, 941-405-466. Seven one, and you can ask for Joan. So, nine four one four zero five four six seven one. We really appreciate if someone can help a fellow Newfoundlander, Labradorian, if they could bring some things back to St. John's for us. We really appreciate it. If you get any takers, let us know. Yes, and I'd be so thankful. Uh, I'm praying for you that someone will come and 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 come our way. We did have one guy who was going to bring something back, but he he had an emergency, so he's not coming up. So I really thank him too for calling when when you know we put the. Uh, went on VLCM again, so I really appreciate it. But you're doing a wonderful job. I have VLCM on every day. When we wake up in the morning here, wouldn't do without it. So I really appreciate all you do for everybody, Patty. You are amazing. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. My husband says... You can't go through the day without listening to Patty. I says, no, my day is not complete. <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> so I, I really thank you for all you do for everybody. It's uh, it's amazing show, and you help so many people. So. Thanks a lot, John. You're very kind, and uh, good luck with getting someone to help cart some of your stuff back to town. Okay, so can I give the number one more time? Fire it away. is 941-405-4671. And I'm waiting for my fellow Newfoundlanders, if someone would please call me and try and help me. I'll pay for you. <laughs> pay for what you do for me. Thank you. Good luck, Joan. Take care. Okay, thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number three. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. morning. Thank you to you and David for taking my call, and thank you, um, um, you know, happy Easter to you and David and the people of VOCM and the listening public. Uh, before I get into my conversation, I just want to say I'm sorry that I call you so often, Patty, but uh, I know I must be a pain, but, uh, but uh, I'm calling as a concerned citizen, and I'm calling for other concerned citizens that want me to call you, and the word do get out there, believe me. Uh, so uh, what I'm calling about this morning is we got some devastating news just a few days ago that we're going to lose our doctor or our doctor that we have on Fogo Island, which takes care of Fogo Island change islands, uh, will be leaving. And that's devastating news because we out there stuck in the Atlantic Ocean got to have a medical doctor. The doctor that's there now 
God bless his heart, been there for 11, 12 years, uh, him and his family, which is not easy to get a doctor to come to Fogwell and spend that long with a family because it's not a, a city or a town. Uh, you know, it's on Fogwell, although we love it because it's our own. So he's there, stressed to the max, operating 24 hours around the clock, and now we may end up, pray God we don't, but we may end up after June with no family doctor. So it's it's terrible, and we got to make sure that that don't happen. We need to know from Dr. Aggie, Minister Aggie, uh, whether there's something put in place. I've done some digging into this, and, and I understand there's uh, 30-plus doctors came, uh, comes in the system, well, came in the system recently, but we had 40-something retired. So obviously we're not taking care of the, the number that's going, right? Uh, so uh, I just came from a doctor's appointment, actually, and, and the doctor told me, not on Fogwell, I'm here in town, St. John's, and, uh, you know, there should be something put in place, and I heard this before, I heard some other people, that there should be something put in place because I understand there's there's like 60 medical students. I don't know if these figures are right now, Patty, but it's all secondhand to me. But uh, 60 medical students, uh, there should be something put in place. So when they, these students get their degree, right, their, their medical degree, that they, they should have to stay in the province for at least five years. And if the government got to do give them some incentive to make sure that that document is put in place, uh, it should happen. What do you think, Patty? Am I saying anything sensible here? Well, I mean, everybody wants the services that they need and require or demand where they live. I, I get it. I just think we've got a real complicated issue here where, you know, is it all Haggy's fault or has this been in the works for two decades or is it as simple as just throw money at a doctor and we'll be able to recruit them to work in Buckles or Bay Vert or St. Albans or Fogo or wherever in the province. I, I just think we've got to find ourselves at a spot where we've got a situation that it needs attention, but I, honest to God, don't know what the answers are. I really don't know. I think you know, some of the things I've mentioned in the past, whether it be more and more people are going to get virtual care, but that doesn't deal with your emergencies. And so whether or not a primary collaborative care clinic is going to be of benefit to FOGO, that will still have to include a GP. So where the answers lie, Eugene, I don't know. But I think we've got ourselves convinced that if you simply go ahead and throw money at an issue, it's going to get better. Because I think the proof has been in the pudding. Throwing money at healthcare has not has not brought upon the positive health care outcomes we need, nor has it put anything in place for doctors who are retiring. It's also important to note that there's more nurses and more doctors working in the province today than ever in our history. So how this changes for the better, I honest to goodness do not know. Yeah, good points, good points, Patty. Uh, no, I'm not putting the blame on Dr. Haggy. Definitely not. No, like, you know, the, the, this system... No, he's the minister. The buck stops he, on his he, desk, but, you know... He, he is the minister, and, and we're open that he can come back and let the people of Fogo Island know that there will be something put in place to make sure that there will be a doctor there after June month. Uh, you know, and uh, there is a rumor out now, and it's a strong rumor, that next Thursday, which is the 21st, there will be a demonstration in front of the, uh, the, the uh, medical centre, the hospital on Fogo Island, uh, to try to gain some support to make sure that we do have a doctor put in place. Because if we got a doctor that's there now, stressed to the max and operating 24 hours, and we got to go from no from that to no doctor. I mean, for example, my my brother had, had five emergency trips to that hospital last year, 
you know, and he ended up hanging there after with a pacemaker and all that stuff. I mean, we got to have a doctor. We like I know there was a, just a, just a, a, a job posting put it for a nurse practitioner. Nothing against nurse practitioners. Actually, we got one in my family. We got one in the family. But listen, they're not a medical doctor. You know, they're 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 good. They can prescribe meds and all that stuff, but they're not a medical doctor. Uh, and we got to have a medical doctor on Fogwell, stuck during the Atlantic Ocean for Fogwell and Chan Jones after June month. So that's what I want to say, Patty, and uh, we're going to make sure that we, we lobby and do whatever we can to make sure that happens. Well, I think you're going to hear an awful lot of lobbying. I know your mayor has been in the news talking about it. Mayor Crew has been in the news talking about it. I think to a man, to a woman, everybody acknowledges the problem and is looking actively for solutions, and I try to be part of that. I'm not in the business of just criticizing and leaving at that. If there's some good ideas that you share or anyone else shares email call whatever we're happy to try and throw it out there because we're all in this very same boat and until solutions become part of the conversation versus what's government going to do to save my life i think we're sadly mistaken i I really do and let me put this to you because this is not what everyone wants to hear but of course we have to put all the cards on the table money might not be everything Right, because if I offered, let's say, a, for a round number, a salary for a doctor, two hundred thousand dollars. Let's just yeah. use that as a number, and that's what they can get paid in Halifax, yeah. or in Antigonish in Nova Scotia. And we say, okay, we'll give you two fifty. There's still going to have to be an honest conversation with how attractive a rural isolated part of anywhere in Canada is to a doctor who is in real high demand. How do we overcome that? Because that's becoming our hurdle. Add to it the fact that you've got a doctor right now in Fogel Island who is overworked and burnt out and now leaving. When a doctor who's considering taking that person's place speaks to that doctor, mm. now you're isolated and now you've got unreliable transportation off the island and you've got a stressed out, burnt out doctor who's leaving for a variety of reasons. That makes for a really difficult situation to replace that doctor. Then you have a surgeon or an OBGYN who's working in a smaller hospital or, or a smaller clinic and the surgeons want to be cutting. OBGYNs want to be delivering babies. So if they don't have that frequency of work, how attractive is that option? And how do we overcome it? There are some of the things that I think have to be part of the conversation versus, well, let's just pay them more. Because that might not be all that's required here. What do you think? Well, uh, yeah, I agree. We've been very fortunate to have that doctor there with his family for the last 11 plus years, 11 or 12 years, and his family loves it there, and his son is playing hockey and dearly loves Fogo Island. Uh, you know, but we've been fortunate to, that that family have fitted into Fogo Island like they have. But, you know, I just came from a doctor's appointment, and, I, and he's a family man with, with, with children uh, and living in, in this area. And, and, and I asked him, I said, well, so would you move to Fogo Island with your family. He said, I wouldn't get my family to move to Fogo Island. You know, I mean, we're stuck out there in the ocean. We're dealing with a ferry, and, and there's times that that ferry is down, as you know. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's going to be hard, you know. We're going to be very fortunate if we can get a replacement or if he stays, you know what I mean. But uh, we're just, we, we can't go from two doctors, and that's what we had all along, to, to no doctor. We just can't do it. So uh, I know there's other parts of the province that's asked for the same thing, but I'm speaking up for, for the people of Fulgawal and Chandy Islands today. Appreciate the calls from Eugene. Thank you. Have a good one, Patty. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Look, that's going to be exactly what a lot of communities don't want to hear. But I think until we put those types of conversations out there, then we won't be able to find any way around it or find solutions that may be available, and I freely admit, I don't know what they are. 
So, you know, we hear Dr. Susan McDonald at the NLMA say that there's several rural communities are going to be without a doctor in the near future. That includes, I think it was Buckins and Bay Vert, uh, Harbor Breton comes to mind, St. Albans already lost their doctor. How do we tailor packages for region-specific? Because it's not just say we need to bring a doctor to Newfoundland and Labrador. We need to bring a doctor to a very specific hospital or clinic. How does the recruitment and retention plan look different for different, uh, different areas in the province? It's one thing to attract a doctor to Cornerbrook, quite another to attract a doctor to Ramia. It's a different option to come to St. John's than it is to go to Burgio. So how do we tailor those packages? It's not a one-size-fits-all. It can't possibly be that way. So that's where we need to know more about how the province deals with that particular situation. On the mainland, it'll be a vastly different conversation. You can be a resident in Cape Breton, but in close proximity to Halifax, right? So it's not necessarily the same thing here. And that's where we've got to try to change the conversation, change our approach to recruiting a doctor or a nurse or any healthcare professional, because the competition for these pros is extraordinary. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. All right, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of Local One at the FFAW. That's Brenda King on line number one. Brenda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Grand today. Thanks. How about you? Oh, wonderful. A lot of frustrated Newfoundlanders, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am. For a short answer. <laughs> anyway, we're outside having a demonstration at uh, Arnold's Cove Fish Plant, uh, Ice Water Seafood. And uh, we are frustrated and disappointed that uh, the company is not paying the stat holiday. So, Patty, whether you're uh, not unionized or unionized employees, uh, the Newfoundland Labor Standards Act requires all employers to meet the legislation uh, minimum standards and paid stat holidays. Yes, Patty, our members meet the qualifications. We have employed for at least 30 days. And, yes, we work to schedule shifts before and after the holiday. And if you don't work on the holiday, we are entitled to receive an average day's pay at a regular rate. Now, Patty, ice water is used in the past practice that if you don't work the week before the holiday, you are not entitled to the holiday. Just because it's past uh, practice, it doesn't mean it's right. This past practice is wrong. Uh, Patty, members thought in our last contract we resolved this issue, but obviously we did not. Because of the percentages in our collective agreement, members are receiving less than the minimum standards. Uh, we have nine paid stat holidays in our collective agreement. And in 2021, job grade one members only got paid for six. We should have received $859. Uh, what did we get? Uh, most average, a little over $300. That's over $500 for each member. That's a lot of dollars. And, Patty, we have full-time maintenance members that are losing up to $400 for the year. Patty, that's not right, and it's not fair. Okay. When you have a contract which is should be enforced to the letter of the contract, this becomes a labor relations matter, doesn't it? This is not, a, this is not a, no, a protest no. issue. Why can't you have the contract enforced by the powers that be? So, anyway, we are going to arbitration. Okay, so we know this rally would give awareness to the decision uh, makers. So the company says they can't afford to pay for the stat holidays. But you know what? We can't afford not to get paid. You know, these are all they pay is for a power bill or grocery bill or even pay for the gas for a vehicle to get to work. Yeah, I mean, I understand. 
uh, I have a contract here. I mean, it, if they don't yeah. live up to it, even though there's been some times in the during the pandemic, for instance, talking about affordability, where the unfortunate reality is we all took a pay cut for a while. And I can tell you right now, even though the boss is listening, I didn't like it. But I understood it. Of course you don't. We don't like it. And it's not fair. I mean, if you've got a contract, you should abide by it. But this is why we're going to arbitration. But we just want to let people know, let the decision makers know that it's not right. It's not fair. Uh, Patty, Icewater Seafoods operates the only state-of-the-art ground fish production facility in North America. How did Icewater maintain its well-known name? It's not only because of the excellent quality of cod. It's a dedicated employees. And we want, want to get what it's, we're entitled to. Let's take the other side of the coin for the purpose of conversation. What happens if Mr. Wareham says that he can't afford to pay out these days at this moment in time and the the eligibility for the stat pay is if you had to work the week before, as I think what you said. What happens if the end result of this is people get their stat paid, but there'll be less people working there? What do you mean, less, uh, less people? No, no. I mean, he's trying to say he can't afford to pay for it. Well, we know he can. It's in our contract. Why sign the contract? You're not going to abide by it. I mean, we got negotiations coming up again now next spring. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and with the state of the economy now, I mean, it's ridiculous. It, it, it's not right and it's not fair. You know, in saying that, Patty, members are proud to be a part of our Swatter, proud to have the plant in Arnold's Cove that gives employment to the town and surrounding areas. I'm proud that the plant keeps ruling this land alive. But our members want to get paid for their stat holidays. You know, we did not want to bite the hand that feeds us, you know. But we don't want to be walked over either. It's not fair and it's not right. So I'm just putting it out there now, let people in Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, we're going to arbitration. And we hope this rally gives awareness to the decision makers. I think if anybody has a contract, the contract should be abided by the end. The end, exactly. So thank you for listening to us. Um, we're still going to continue our demonstration for the day. It's very peaceful. Uh, we just want Newfoundland and Labrador to know that, you know, it's not right. It's not right. This is why the state of Newfoundland is like it is. Appreciate the time this morning, Brenda. Good luck. Good luck. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Brenda King. She's the president of FFAW Local One. Before we get to the news, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing Doing today? Doing great today. Thanks. How about you? Good. Not bad. Not bad. Just wanted to call. Well, first, let me introduce my two hats I'm wearing today. I'm uh, the head coach of the uh, CBR U11 All-Star team that's heading to the Provincials in uh, next weekend. And I'm also a board member with Special Olympics Newfoundland Labrador. Uh, one of the things that uh, we're doing with our ho- young hockey team is teaching them to be good citizens and uh, doing things for others as well. And uh, we're doing a uh, thrift store drive for the uh, for Special Olympics new thrift store that they've opened on 1154 Tops the Road this coming Saturday at Robert French Arena in Conception Bay South and doing a drop-off between 11, 11 and 1 p.m. So I just wanted to call and do a shout-out to uh, my young athletes who are doing a good job uh, on the ice and off the ice. And uh, they're taking up a good cause, working with some other special uh, Olympic athletes in, in helping them as well. So I'm just, uh, just trying to drum up some support for our uh, thrift store drive that we're doing for Special Olympics. Good stuff, you know. So two good reasons to be trying to drive a bit of traffic through. And we've been given the Special Olympics uh, new thrift store, I think, out on Tops Road. Uh, shout out every now and then because, you know, there's some good deals to be had inside and you're going to be able to fund a pretty important initiative that is, has a special place in my heart.
Absolutely, and and teaching young hockey players uh, uh, the importance of being good good citizens in their community, and uh, they're doing it for a good cause, and it makes them better athletes and better players themselves. A hundred percent, Scott. Good luck with it. All right, thank you very much, Betty. Have a great day. Very same to you. Take care. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, the Minister of Health Community Services, Dr. John Hagee, he's the Liberal Member for Gander. He's in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM 2022 ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Liberal member of Gander, from Gander, and he's the Minister of Health and Community Services. That's Dr. John Hagee. Minister Hagee, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? Oh, hanging in there too as well. Um, I uh, uh, welcome the opportunity to ring up and, and talk about some of the uh, the healthcare investments and challenges that uh, come from the the last little while. But um, as of uh, less than half an hour ago, um, I've been informed by the Executive Council that we have a successful uh, hire for the Assistant Deputy Minister of Health Professional Recruitment and Retention, and this individual will start at the end of May. So that's the uh, the keystone piece in uh, uh, putting out our uh, provincial and national recruiting strategy uh, and getting things on a uh, provincial-wide uh, uh, consistent uh, hiring system. That's good news. Um, before we get into, say, first of the issues in Central and the small communities that are going to lose their doctors, and some communities will have none, let's talk about recruitment. Because like I was saying when I spoke with Eugene Nipper on Fogo Island, a recruitment package can't be come to Newfoundland and Labrador because there's a vast difference between working in Fog- on Fogo Island versus working in St. John's, for instance. What kind of attention is given to tailoring the recruitment, not only for the entirety of their family, their spouse, and opportunities for their children, but for the different regions? Because it's not quite as attractive for some doctors to work in a rural isolated community as it would be to work in a cosmopolitan center. How tailored do we make the plan? No, and I think that's one of those things we could do better. We have commissioned some research as well to help inform uh, the other element of that, which you didn't address, which is changing work preferences and work styles for uh, healthcare professionals in general. Uh, we knew there was a trend in that direction before COVID, but you've seen uh, not just here, but across the entire country, um, healthcare professionals choose to radically change the way they consider work, uh, moving from uh, full-time employment to part time and moving from permanent uh, to casual or to these float positions. Uh, Certainly, uh, you and I have talked before about recruiting uh, a physician, uh, but you're right. You've got to attract a family. It's how you uh, uh, are able to accommodate a spouse who may have a a similar career or or a completely different one, Uh, what the interests of the children might be in terms of extracurricular school activities. Uh, And, you know, the lifestyle we know, a particular kind of individual loves to work in rural and isolated uh, areas, uh, and we see that very much with the Goose Bay, the Northern Family medicine program uh, that doesn't appeal to everybody uh, and so um, we have seen a tendency across all of the healthcare professions uh, for a, a kind of urbanization for want of a better word where people do prefer to move and work into bigger centers the immediacy of the uh, issue is very very real health accords is probably going to be very helpful in their guidance and the blueprint to how we implement their ideas but you just mentioned commissioning some research on about the flexibility of scheduling, the casualization, as they refer to it. How does that jibe or line up with the fact that we've sent a contract to change Healthcare Canada? It can be as lucrative as $35 million, and there's some penalties or fines if we don't implement X percentage of their recommendations. So how does this new research that you're commissioned jibe with the money we're spending on a scheduling software package? 
Well, the scheduling software package is very much an operational thing. It's a performance-based contract, uh, and the company was originally based out of Vancouver before it was merged. Uh, from our point of view, that is very much an operational, how you plan out what staff are needed on a unit for the next two weeks and how it fits in with a collective bargaining arrangement, rather than the current, uh, which is to get your printout from Outlook uh, of the calendar and start writing names in it. And that's how it's being done in regional health authorities at the moment by managers. So uh, that really um, is, is very much an operational thing. This other piece around recruitment is to help us tweak. Um, I think it's a, a misunderstanding out there that the RHAs have done nothing about recruitment. And you reference Central, for example. They've recruited 36 physicians in the last two years. And that's a credit to them in this environment that they have attracted 36 families to central Newfoundland. Unfortunately, we've seen 45 physicians leave over the same period. Interestingly, though, only one or two of those physicians has actually left the province. The rest have reallocated their services, as it were, to other regions, other communities in the province, certainly in the situation of the Conagra, for example. So, again, it speaks very much to that very individual and tailored approach of, you know, what's your cultural background, uh, what's the interests of the spouse and the family, uh, and from my own personal experience of being directly involved in recruiting both in St. Anthony in the day with Grenfell Regional Health Service services and in central um, there are communities that do not appeal uh, to one family but do to another and it's it's hard sometimes to do that balancing act uh, particularly if the spouse has say a degree in law and wants to practice it proves very difficult to put them anywhere outside a hub so what's the immediate solutions for the places that Dr. Susan McDonald talks about? Harbour Breton or Buckins, they've already lost their doctor in St. Albans or Bayvert. They are clamoring in Fogo Island, add that to the mix. They won't have a doctor. So now what? Well, there are several strategies we have put in place. Uh, some of them are, are seen by people as, you know, temporary and stopgap, but in actual fact, they're support mechanisms. We've announced in the budget, for example, uh, investment for a virtual ER based in Gander and boosting the one uh, at the other side of the region in, in uh, Grand Falls Windsor. That's there to provide support to any emergency room practitioner anywhere in the region. It also helps mitigate the effects when you lose cover for a physician. Uh, and it's, it's, it is that. It is a mitigation strategy. The challenge, again, is trying to find a model uh, that will work. We know the collaborative team clinic will be the model to do it. And in actual fact, Conagra is the chosen site for Central Health's um, new collaborative team clinic. Uh, these things do take time. We have done significant work on recruitment, though, of um, other health professionals. We knew there was going to be a crunch come, uh, and certainly COVID exacerbated that. And in 2019, we basically doubled the number of LPN seats in the province. And in um, the case of PCAs, we increased that by 70%. We've had two classes of PCAs graduate, July and September. We've had one class of LPNs graduate in December. And the, those who were trained on the campuses in Central have all been hired by Central Health, all 30 of them got jobs, walked into them. Um, we are looking at strategies to stabilize the situation uh, in um, central health. And I know the CEO there, she and I 
have been in regular contact looking at how we can uh, provide a medical cover where medical cover is missing and how we can provide nursing cover to do two things. One is to relieve those overworked and stressed out uh, nurses uh, and healthcare providers on the front lines, clear the uh, corridors in emergency uh, and work on making sure that the permanent staff and the regular staff get their leave so they have an opportunity to go away for you know two weeks not get phone calls mandating them back and uh, to uh, to come back recharged because they've slogged away for two years and this omicron uh, variant arriving when it did i think was almost uh, uh, more than some of them wanted but on some of them have left we know for example that six rns in central have left their permanent posts and signed on as casual so uh, we've not lost their skills completely but we've lost the ability to make sure some of those shifts are covered some of this kind of feels like we're just shuffling around healthcare professionals for instance establishing a primary care or collaborative clinic on Topsail road or on monday pound road that doctor for instance if we just talk about the gps that doctor came from another clinic so we actually haven't backfilled where that clinic is now now without their gp so they just kind of moved somewhere else so how has that solved anything i know in one of the clinics you say some four thousand patients have, have been signed up and they will now be able to receive care even though it doesn't have the continuity of care the same doctor every time so are we simply just moving professionals around as opposed to backfill the positions that are lost several things in there uh, to unpack there paddy uh in the situation of the two new collaborative team clinics in st john's no physician left a practice to take up one of those jobs they are all new to the system that's the first thing second thing is you mentioned continuity of care and I think it would be really important to emphasize that there is continuity of care through these collaborative team clinics now there is a Monday pond walking clinic and that's different but the collaborative team clinics there is continuity that building will be your health home and you will go in there with whatever issue you have from a health or a wellness point of view you may not see the physician you saw last time you might see the nurse practitioner because that is the best person to deal with your issue on that day. On another day, you might see the physician uh, or, or a mental health and addictions counsellor or a diabetic educator, depending on what the requirement is. But that team will know you and that team will be your health home. That's the continuity there. That's the model in actual fact called something else that's worked in Brookfield Hospital for years. It's worked in, uh, you know, the other more rural hubs like uh, Port of Basque. It's worked there for years. So I, th I think it's important to, uh, to allay people's fears because using the words slightly, uh, you know, offhand and, and uh, without, you know, a real appreciation of what the machinery is behind it, they're going to get continuity. These are new people in the system. I have no interest in making people fearful and that's why we ask the questions you can uh, offer clarification you mentioned nurse practitioners if you hear from Margo Antle the president of the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Nurse Practitioner Association she brings up a couple of very interesting hurdles that they're having to clear twofold question uh, I'm told that those nurse practitioner clinics have to pay double what doctors pay to get access to the provincial electronic medical system I wonder why and also they're unable to access diagnostic test supplies why would it be so different and so much more expensive for a nurse practitioner versus a doctor simply to be part of the integrated system. 
So, uh, uh, again, I welcome the opportunity to, to be here, Paddy, and I, I wasn't trying to be critical. I'm just No, that's okay. I don't mind. Go ahead. No. Um, the nurse practitioner situation, uh, we are uh, very fortunate that we have the number of nurse practitioners we do. They're a really crucial piece. Um, we do have a framework for uh, bringing nurse practitioners into the system in primary care, and that is the collaborative team clinics. If that group in Cornerbrook, for example, wanted to, uh, we, would ins- we would get Western Health to set them up as the nucleus of a collaborative team clinic, initially nurse practitioner-led. My understanding from uh, the Nurse Practitioners Association, and I've met with Miss Antle, and I've also been in discussions with the RNU both now and as far ago as 2019, is that for frameworks that are for independent practice, there's several challenges. One is um, uh, the issue of integration. Collaborative team clinics are the way to go. And I mean, if this uh, trio or any nurse practitioner wants a job in this province, they can have one. And that instruction has gone clearly to each of the regional health authorities. The other operational pieces, they relate to the fact that there is no framework currently because we didn't have the opportunity to set one up when Miss Forward and I started talking about it in 2019 because COVID got in the way. Um, the, the, the electronic health record is a great tool, but we need to protect access to the right people. Uh, and we also need to, uh, to, to make sure it's used as an integration tool, not as something to produce another silo. Right. But I mean, the efficiency, whether we're talking about uh, access to the electronic medical records for referrals or follow up, we seem to be making it a bit more difficult than necessary and I know there's you know things that have to be moved and amendments have to be made and some maybe some potentially some legislative approach but if we're talking about easing the burden on the system the nurse practitioners and their uh, sk- trained skill set should be part of it a last question before I know we're running out of time when will the towards recovery report be released and can you give us an idea how much money in this year's budget is associated directly with mental health care uh, the towards recovery, I'm not sure. We we undertook the uh, report, uh, uh, the recommendations uh, had a scorecard which ran out for uh, for about two years, and we fulfilled those reporting requirements. The actual proportion of money uh, of the healthcare budget spent on mental health and addictions has been rising slowly. I don't have this year's um, uh, I don't have this year's figure to hand. Last year's it was up to around eight percent our target i think was nine or ten going from memory um we would certainly love to uh, uh produce a, a kind of state of the union around mental health and addictions uh we have not yet completed all the recommendations there's two action plans left to release the life promotion and suicide prevention and the alcohol action plan there is also then the issue of the community support program the rfps are out and back haven't been analyzed yet but that's for that kind of supportive shelter kind of environment for people who are transitioning from a facility to the community again so a lot of work gone on there Um, we have people from across the globe coming to see how we've done it Uh, the feds have been really interested in trying to see if they can take some of our ideas Uh, you know our eating disorders unit for example new brunswick wants to send us patients so i think uh, um uh, you know happy to talk about that anytime uh, just in case i may have missed it and that's quite possible when will the towards recovery report be released the, I, the, the report, I, I'm not quite sure that exactly I understand the phrasing. Um, we have released all the reports 
that we were scheduled to release. Okay. Um, there were no more. Uh, there was talk in the department, particularly with the, uh, the rapid progress on the new adult mental health facility, of actually using uh, the final uh, recommendations and their, their release uh, as a, a kind of state of the union on mental health. I can certainly get you the figure, the percentage of the uh, health budget that goes on mental health. I can get my staff and uh, communications people to, to send that to you. I appreciate that, and I appreciate your time. Thank you, Minister. Not a problem, Patty. You have a good day. Thank you. Very same to you. Bye-bye. So Minister of Health and Community Services, Dr. John Hagee. Time for our final break of the day and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, is there a name on this one, David? Okay, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Donna. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks to you. Uh, pretty good. I just had a quick comment. I was listening to Dr. Hagee talking about the, some RNs going back casual because it made for a better work life. I retired from nursing three years ago. This was happening, well, before I retired because that was the only way you could guarantee you were going to get a shift off. You could never get any annual leave. You were being denied time for a family wedding. So this is not a new problem, and no. this is not a real solution. Well, I mean, I don't know where the solution lies. You know, people make the argument that it's not as bad as people make it out to be for every nurse. That's a, a personal issue, an individual issue. I don't know. We pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $45, $50 million in overtime to nurses. Could that money be refunded to fill the vacancies? Probably. Uh, I don't know what, what benefit it is to the individual and or the patients when we have so many nurses that turn to the casual list. I, I guess it's best for them and their family, but I'm not so sure what it does for the system. No, it's terrible for the system, and it makes it harder for those that remain full-time. But, but for, the, for the individual who chooses to go back casual, sometimes it's the only way they can see to maintain either bit of work-life balance. I get that. Yeah, I just, I just listening to Haggy just then kind of put my blood pressure a little bit through the roof, and I figured I had to let the public know that this has been happening for a good spell, and it really needs to be addressed. Well, I hope your blood pressure has been relieved a little bit by making some time for the show. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Donna. All the best. Bye-bye. Very quick shout-out on behalf of the crowd up at the Hub. Fish and chips at the Hub tomorrow if you're so inclined and you're looking for a place to sell you a feed of fee and chi, D and G, and a diet P. All right, good show today. Appreciate the support the program gets, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy Easter weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.